Welcome back to Reformed Millennials, the podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice as an advising representative with Gold Investment Management, LTD, a firm registered as a portfolio manager and located in Edmonton, Alberta. This podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Joel Shackleton, Cam Pitchers, or GIM have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. All right, back Wednesday morning record. Um, Happy hump day. <laughs> yeah, should we just do Wednesdays from now on? Probably makes the most sense. It's kind of actually a nice little like target to hit in the week, you know? Well, the way I look at it is, since you're on vacation so much, <laughs> the Friday and Monday that rolls over into your extended weekends, mm-hmm. it makes it difficult, right? I mean, even the production guy is always away. Mm-hmm. It feels like I'm the only consistent person for sure who can be there on Mondays and Fridays. So Wednesday might be the new release day. Okay, <laughs> I guess I can get on board with that and fit that into my my schedule. Um, I had to ask you something on the way here. Driving here, it was a bit congested coming in from Sure Park. Always for us. I mean, you never, you never know what's going to happen with with traffic on the way in. And I. I I don't want to sound boring talking about traffic on a podcast, but I was listening to, I think it's the Boston with the boys podcast, the barstool. It's like old football guys that have a podcast okay. and they, I just listened to clips. They're actually pretty funny guys. And they were talking about pet peeves the other day. And it happened to me just before coming here, what they were talking about. So when you get to a light and you're turning left and the person in front of you, does not pull halfway into the intersection to then turn left. They wait at the stop line, which if there's any cops or traffic police out there that are going to tell me that is the correct thing to do, I don't care because you're stopping everybody else from behind you from potentially making that light and congesting traffic. I just about had an aneurysm behind the the person before coming here. Is that at the, the Jasper Ave? At the Jasper Ave turnoff, yeah. 109. And just like what goes through anyone's brain to not have the courtesy to pull out into the intersection so that at least two people can make a light as opposed to one, especially when you're talking about downtown driving. Yeah. And so the topic of pet peeves are just in my head after listening to that podcast clip and then it actually happening to me no more than 24 hours later after hearing it and saying, this must rank in the top three for me. And you being someone who gets pet peeved by everything, <laughs> I wanted to bring that up to you and see if that was a a ranking item for you as well. You know what? That probably doesn't fall into my top three for even driving pet peeves. (laughs) That being said, I could see it fitting its way in. The one that bothers me most is almost certainly the yields. People not um, taking advantage of um, merge lanes. Oh, goodness gracious. That's way worse. It's way worse. Stopping before a merge lane. Before. It's just... I think what it speaks to is low IQ. <laughs> and that might be sensitive for some that are a little bit worried. It and might be. It, and maybe they're just learning. And if you're 16 years old listening to this, be cautious when driving. However, if you're 36, yeah. use that darn merge lane or I'm going to be honking at you. So look out <laughs> look out for Cam and Joel losing their minds. Yeah. What, what do you think uh, Adam Silver and Gary Bettman's pet peeves are right now uh, in their leagues? Uh, definitely um, small markets winning. <laughs> and lack of competition, I would say. Yeah, I'm sure they're really disappointed by that. It's nice to see um, the best player winning in the case of the Western Conference. Mm-hmm. With that said... LeBron making it to that final or the conference final is like probably good for ratings. Oh, that's the, that was really good. It's just the fact that I mean, even if even if Denver and it looks like Miami, you know, I know um, Boston won last night to push another game, but 
to cons- the fact that both series could be over now in four games and five games, and then there's going to be a break. I think the finals, at least are from a TV schedule standpoint, are not supposed to start until June 1st. I guess there could be some flexibility with that if something opens up with other availability. But the fact that you've had essentially zero competition, like I, I know I was quoted on, on this podcast saying a few weeks ago talk, when the playoffs were first starting and saying how the NBA only gets better as they go on. <laughs> and I mean, maybe to a degree it was like second round, maybe that, that happened, but usually you have two heavyweights kind of going back and forth, have a call it a six, seven game series in the conference finals. And they're not getting that. And then to your point, you know, LA and Boston, that would have been the ideal finals matchup for them. And now it looks like obviously LA is already out and now Boston might be, on its way on its way out as well so then you have this denver like not saying that they both have like great stories actually to be honest like i think easy to market for the nba you got two big stars like kind of budding stars in in denver in terms like i mean Jokic, two-time mvp but in terms of like marketability to the entire league or the country or nba fandom in general he's still kind of just scratching the surface i would say just because he's not a very gregarious guy pretty soft-spoken from my understanding anyways, you don't see them on a ton of marketing material. Yeah. But I mean, watching those guys play, they play basketball the right way. It's a, if you're a purist, I think people love watching them play. But again, you have, you have Denver and then potentially this ragtag group out of Miami led by basically we're seeing the best playoff, like single playoff performance in terms of when you compare what he is, what Jimmy Jim Butler <laughs> in the regular season versus Jimmy Buckets Butler in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. Just a completely different mindset. So there's, I think there is still storylines. Like we talked about how, again, NBA does such a good job marketing their stars, getting to that finals, making it a – trying to, I think, take lessons from the NFL in terms of making their games, events, and things you have to tune into. And I think they're, they can still do it probably, but – at the end of the day, they had a lot of things that happened that would go against what I said a few weeks ago where it was like, oh, well, it's going to be, you know, top four in each conference. You're going to have the superstars going against the superstars, and that's going to be that, and it's not really playing out that way this year. And then same thing with the NHL, right? I mean, really I haven't had, watched a minute. Well, and I, I think we have to take that comment with a grain of salt a little bit just because we know we've talked about, obviously, who we're fans of. Mm-hmm. And I think when you have a good team and you lose out, then you're not interested because you're jaded totally. and don't want to follow it anymore. I think it's the same for you talk about even I've heard players comment on this as well. When when you're a player that doesn't make the playoffs, you actually tune into more of it and follow it potentially more than the guys who hate their lives because they lost this opportunity. Like mm-hmm. the guys who really love the game, obviously. Like, I mean, I can't speak for Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl. If I'm them, I'm not watching a single second after I lost that game because all I'm going to think about watching is like, that could be me. Like seeing like Vegas up 3-0 now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 3-0 as of last night. I mean, it's that's, over, basically. Yeah. You just lose, you, you've just lost the team that's potentially in the finals, potentially got an inside track of winning the cup but again talking about team like Mark, Gary's probably again losing in my opinion would be losing his mind he's probably not because again it's always expansion babies that are, are making it through here but essentially no drama for the most part in terms of this series now there's been four overtime games I think in the Florida Carolina series whatever it's still there's no it's almost a it's an expectation where the the two teams are going to make it now there's really no no drama going on so mm-hmm. you know what your finals is going to be and again they're going to have a gap to the start of their finals so you kind of lose that momentum at times too when you don't have those longer series so i think both it'd be interesting just to see i i, I haven't seen any, i've been kind of searching around for numbers i think maybe there'll be after these conference finals are done there'll be something that comes out in terms of eyeballs and whatnot mm-hmm. and and to see where that's gone because I, I think it'll be for especially in the states those numbers i think are, will be very telling to see whether or not they've truly made a dent in this kind of non-hockey purist market because one thing i actually noticed i'm not sure if you have watching the nba games is that they are both the obviously with espn and tnt being the two big hitters with basketball same thing with hockey they've been talking about the hockey 
all the time on the broadcasts and yeah, kind of talking, talking about, about the games. Every time about the peas, yeah. <laughs> no one, literally, no one but Brooks calls the Panthers the peas. That was the worst uh, little subtle drop by him. But. No doubt, I think they're becoming. It's there's more pop culture in hockey than there has been in the past ever before. Um, why? Honestly. I can't figure out exactly why that is. Well, I honestly think it's their connection with the broadcasting partners with the NBA. I'm not going to honestly think that. Like, even there there was um, – I don't know who was doing it or putting out the content, but essentially there there was something where this little bit, it's going to be a – I'm not sure, like a little mini series thing on YouTube or whatever, but like the Stanley Cup and the Larry O'Brien trophy – and it's talking oh, like yeah. when Stanley met or when Larry met Stanley. So the playoff of that, that movie and they're going to have like some con I'm assuming it's kind of a joint effort kind of thing, but like, I actually think it's such a, maybe it's not outwardly talked about, but it seems like the NHL is aligning themselves with the NBA. And I know we talked about some potential issues with NBA growth, just given the kind of uncertainty around or what the expectation was going to be with their next big, contract tv contract and that it might not be as lucrative as they first thought just given how content is kind of augmenting itself and fracturing as we've put it on recent podcasts but at the same time it's still in comparison to take the nfl out of the conversation it's still a rocket ship in comparison to what the nhl has done and but now you know nhl has made these in our inroads into their u.s television partners They've seen a little bit of stickiness, I think. They've taken a new approach to having similar type content creation as the NBA in terms of having really good former players on panels and them being involved in in, in content creation and kind of creating, again, more entertainment rather than just analysis. And all of that, to me, after watching kind of a year and a half or so of this, seems to me they're just aligning themselves with what the NBA has done and saying, hey, like let's let's piggyback on what they've done and maybe do some stuff with them. And because you're seeing like kind of Charles Barkley, he's a hockey fan. He chimes in every every single time on the TNT broadcast. He's talking about hockey. Yeah, that's got to be part of his deal so, where he has to mention it, and I, as he should probably. <laughs> yeah, and he's lining I mean, his pockets. He doesn't give it. <laughs> no, I mean, lining his pockets. I actually yeah. think it's a good strategy from the the broadcast. Yeah. Uh, they need to start to promote their other hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, the NBA's biggest, the biggest reason why the NBA demands so much money is because of the timing in the in the schedule um, throughout the year. Right, you have it, it takes up a blank space. You have the NHL that falls in a very similar space, and mm-hmm. if they can promote more people to come out and watch television during times in which there is no college football or. or yeah, the NFL. Yeah. It's good for business. It's a good idea for them. Um, that's what they're trying to do. So smart on their behalf. I think that um, you can kind of see this this dynamic change where you have these major watch events mm-hmm. that are incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to shift here to live golf. Yeah, and uh, talk about the most recent PGA Championship. But actually, a Joe Pomp email newsletter he sent out. I think last week where he discussed the economics of, of top golf, but more specifically, even at the beginning of the article, he talks about uh, the PGA and the success of their major events. Mm. And um, I think this past weekend just changed a lot of minds Mm. with regards to what the next 15 years is going to look like for a top 50 professional golfer. Mm hmm. And I'm going to read you a quoted tweet from Phil Mickelson, yep. my favorite golfer. So, uh, <laughs> love, now. live, or hate it, it's the best way slash tour to be your best in the majors. Enough events to keep you sharp, fresh and ready, yet not be worn down from too many tournaments or obligations. Mm-hmm. There's 14 live events, 34 weeks left open to prepare for the four majors. And that is interesting. Mm. I understand how revenue is generated at these events. I mean, it's you need the ad space. The reason why Amazon is so incredibly efficient is because they have unlimited shelf space. There is only so much time in a day. There's only so many eyeballs. And there is a constrained amount and 
an infinite amount of competition for that attention. It is very challenging, and I think that this is basically a, a mismatch of incentives from athletes over here that have a limited amount of time to make their money, limited amount of time to win their championships, and then you have these um, the leagues and owners that have a longer duration but also are fighting against um, this ever-changing entertainment space yeah. where you have Instagram, TikTok, this fracturing of the, the entertainment mirror that I talked about where you have people that are finding their interests in so many different places. My, my mm-hmm. wife's watching Selling Sunset and Vanderpump Rules and then my son's watching Disney and The, the Young Jedi and like mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. I'm watching, I'm watching golf and hockey and, and succession. None of, there's not a lot of overlap nowadays. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to what Phil is mentioning here where you can get paid to do these four massive events with Liv or 14 and then compete for what really matters for legacy in golf, it's going to change a few minds, I think, on the PGA Tour side. Mm-hmm. When you look at Rory McIlroy, who, who had to drop out of two major designated um, commitment events because mm-hmm. he, uh, he was mentally exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Scotty made it. John Rahm had to pull out halfway through. Mm-hmm. These people are tired. I don't, it, I don't, I don't think it's easy to play 35 events, mm-hmm. four days, make every cut, just so that you can draw people to come watch. Yeah, I think it's a challenge for these guys. It isn't, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's an amazing job to have. I don't think it's easy to do the full prep to, to play. I played a little bit of competitive golf growing up, and two-day events, three-day events, even as a young buck, drain your mentally, drain your yeah. mentally. It's kind of like doing a playoff run over and over and over again. Well, and I think the the thing to take away from that, we always talk about the big boys, talk about top 50 or whatever. Like, what about all the guys grinding just, just to make a, like, quote unquote, just to make a living? I mean, like, maybe you're earning a, a few hundred thousand dollars, like now with the elevated events and purses being bigger. If you can get yourselves into those tournaments, like, yeah, maybe you're making a few hundred thousand dollars now, even if you're a top 150 golfer. But that's your gross earnings. They don't, I I think you can find a bunch of stories online videos about people on the, you know, on the tour grind and getting to where they're getting to sure. Sponsors cover a lot of stuff, but it's still a huge like travel commitment away from your family. Like it's a very, (laughs) it's a, I think it would be again, as you pointed out, it's on the mental side or psychological side more than anything. The, physical side of golf i think <laughs> yeah it's we've, not, we've had just look at the bodies i agree it's a, i agree you have to be an athlete to play these days but you know some of the folks out there aren't exactly hitting the gym six times a week in the off season but <laughs> the i i agree with you i think the mindset now i just want to make this clear because like i know i was when Liv was first got announced i was very much not necessarily completely against it but just kind of arguing the points of the people who were against it and I think taking the conversation about where the money's coming from and whether or not you have a problem with that, just how Live is being funded, I think I want to take that out of the conversation for right now and just talk about like the concept of what Live is. And I think I agree with you that <clears throat> it's now being shown, given the results of the Masters and PGA Championship, we've got the US Open coming up, so we'll see if this is consistent or not. But You've had multiple people from the Live Golf League be competitive in those tournaments. Brooks had a 54-hole lead heading into the Masters final round, choked it away, but was still right there. And then now has kind of he closed the closed the deal on Sunday with now his fifth major championship, which again is going to get a lot of headlines, right? So I think, and then Bryson was up there. A couple others were on the on the first page of the leaderboard type thing, right? So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you got, you got some, the high, high level talent, like especially like there are some guys on live that definitely just took the bag. Yeah. Like Brooks's brother. Yeah. Why is he there? Exactly. Can barely but, hit. but that's almost like, that's just uh that's just a sunk cost for live just to, sure. just to get the fields Fill and the what they need to do. Right. But I think there has already been announcements about the PGA changing some things for next year. Like they've essentially changed what, what their schedule and event programming looks like i think every year for the last four years yeah so like they're going to essentially a designated event style next year where there's no cuts 
um, only 70 man fields, et cetera, where you have to like the top 50 auto qualify top 10 in the year auto qualify. And then there's, you know, 10 other ways to kind of get into the tournaments if you're other players. So like they're already taking bits and pieces of this. I assume if we, and this is all like recency bias, our discussion here, like who knows, maybe Brooks and Bryson, like they've caught lightning in a bottle and all these guys completely fall off. And um, it's, you know, it's a non, you know, it does, it, it sputters out over time. But I think in terms of the concept of what golf could look like is a good conversation to have. And I think the PGA is already, and like, you know, that like Rory was like, obviously he's the, the golden boy of the PGA right now. He was very much against all of this, you know, the guys leaving, going to live. I think he as well was more so questioning right or wrong, whatever. I mean, it's probably sometimes it's a bit of a, um, um, ignorant comment to make. Cause like, where was his money coming from on some of his sponsors and where is it funded from? Like he might not know, but in terms of questioning the, where the money's coming from for live again, taking that outside of the conversation, he was very much against it publicly, you know, behind closed doors, he was telling the commission there. I think Jay Monahan's his name of the PGA. We got to implement some of this stuff or we're going to lose more guys. So if you want me to stay, we got to do this. He's got his tiger and Rory, that new thing in the fall, that indoor virtual golf thing. This is spurred very much what Phil said 18 months ago. There needs to be big change in what we're doing. Adapt or die, mm-hmm. essentially, from the what PGA is doing from an entertainment standpoint. And this has spurred a lot of change in the last 12 months for them. And I think Joe had released, you, you had talked about um, you know some of the top golf stuff and then some of the PGA notes. Outside of the first tournament of the year, or first two tournaments, I think, in the year, every other tournament has seen a over a 10% increase in, in, viewership. in viewership. It's wild. It's an unbelievable stat, actually. I don't know if there's a major sport that's growing at this pace. Obviously, small numbers compound faster. Yep. I mean, maybe the F1's growing faster than this, mm-hmm. uh, but really great to see. I think that what's most interesting for me, mm-hmm. uh, especially, and I think this is more applicable to our podcast that is turned into a sports cast, is the uh, how this applies to business, and then even somebody identifying opportunity inside mm-hmm. of business, right? So um, I want to use an example here that Pomp points out, and it's Top Golf. Mm-hmm. For every person listening to this podcast that's been on a bachelor party, they've probably gone to a Top Golf. <laughs> they built something similar in Calgary very recently. Yeah. Um, it sounds like they're expanding quickly, but Top Golf was founded in in um, two thousand, and very recently was acquired by Callaway Golf at a two billion dollar valuation. They made two separate or three transactions: um, the first two, twenty sixteen and twenty eighteen, and then they bought the remaining eighty six percent in twenty twenty one for that two billion dollar number. And Top Golf now is doing one point five billion in revenue. That's pretty darn good for a little driving range. Mm-hmm. And I think the 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 most interesting from thing from my perspective is that they I mean started much earlier two thousand I was ten yeah but with all that said the real momentum began call it twenty seventeen mm-hmm. and golf has really picked up momentum mm-hmm. in the last three years largely due to COVID I mean yeah. you have thirty six percent growth in youth picking up the sport pretty impressive numbers so if you're a business trying to get into a space this is most certainly one of the faster growing athletic spaces. It is growing its audience. It's getting bigger. Um, I think that's largely because of the individual nature of it. You can see the people's faces. You can interact with their style, the fashion, the, the, the real things that you can build businesses off of Mm -hmm. where I think it's always been a huge struggle for the individual that wears a helmet, somebody who's playing football or, um, Somebody hockey, in hockey, yeah. for that matter, right? Yeah. It's very difficult. I mean, it's hard to sell a sneaker when you wear a skate. Yeah, truly. 100%. So I feel I feel for them. I think the other thing that's interesting in the golf space and like this, like so, we talked about how Callaway purchased Top Golf, and then my brain just immediately went to our favorite YouTube channel, Good Good Golf, yeah. and like those, so a bunch of twenty-some-year-old guys started this. I mean, I think couple of them obviously were maybe grinding on youtube doing content stuff oh, yeah. from the time Pro- 15 yeah but i mean they really hit it big in the again the covid years and you can see it's kind of had this rocket ship of a 
in popularity online. There's been, they were kind of the, one of the originators. I think there's a, some guys out of Europe too, that were really big into the space as well, but all of that has grown exponentially. And I think again, to your point, it was one thing that you could do during those COVID years in terms of outside activity, uh, when there were restrictions in a bunch of parts of the world, the individual, the, the ease of like the barrier to entry is in terms of, I mean, buying a brand new set of TaylorMades is not like top of the line is not cheap, but there's so many golf clubs out there. You can find a rental, you can find a, a used pair, pick them up. You can just do it. You can go out and do it. You don't need anything other than a club yeah. in your hand. You don't need anything a, else. A, a driver depreciates faster than a Corvette. So. <laughs> yeah. But you, you can see that obviously with Callaway purchasing top golf, Callaway's made big investment. They've, they're now partnered with good, good golf. They've sponsored all these guys. TaylorMade's made huge investments into the YouTube space, YouTube golf space as well. Basically taking money out of going on to maybe they sponsored, let's just call it a hundred PGA tour people previously. You're getting way more ad space time going with these, uh, you know, average Joe golfers on YouTube that are now going to be pumping your stuff that you're, that they're getting 500,000 views on videos with your, with your tailor-made product right in everybody's face so in comparison for, to the guy who finishes 75th on the money list. So just think about this. You have 500,000 views on a video that someone went and played 18 holes. They get 500,000 views on it. Yeah, like an 18-minute video. The final round of the Arnold Palmer had 3.2 million. So the mm-hmm. the only non-major on this list or yeah. the that has a enormous um viewership yeah. 4.1 million viewers tuned into the pga the players championship the yeah. players is like largest person golf huge event it's probably the sixth most important yeah. title to win and for context there are youtubers that are getting larger audiences mm-hmm. than these events are mm-hmm. this is a massive opportunity mm-hmm. and uh top golf is clearly making all the right decisions and kind of harnessing this and then being a platform for for events obviously it's a restaurant they're growing and from a real estate perspective mm-hmm. i mean joe pomp loves to point out that these things aren't profitable but he he i think misses the mark a lot of the time in his in his piece he talks about how um the top golf is not um, producing a profit. Mm-hmm. Well, Amazon purposely doesn't produce a profit, and they're growing or adding ten locations a year. Right mm-hmm. now, there's ninety or eighty venues in nine countries. Yeah, and I think that the the real important metric to follow here is growth, and then them maintaining that per location revenue number, yeah, and profitability number, so that it, they can justify that growth. Don't they're not the investors are getting the return on the growth of their equity, not on their profit to the bottom line. And that should be, um, for yeah, people st- reading Pomp, they should recognize that. Get, you gotta always take the context of the stage, like the life cycle of that business into context, right? Like I, I think something like this will plateau at some point in terms of their growth and, and what they can be. I think that, again, they've caught a wave a little bit, I would say in the last three years especially. In terms of the popularity growth, I think they're, you know, like anything, there there will be some plateauing. And I think that ultimately that's, again, a what they are truly getting from their investment in, I, I, I would top golf, like where have they, have they expanded all the way across the states? That's the only thing I, I know it's 80 plus locations now. But is, is it kind of been centralized to like the lower half? Of, Where it's warm? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. So I think that's, an, that's one thing to consider with all yeah. of this. Like I know you, well, Calgary is not particularly warm. I know, but I, I guess just like from an infrastructure standpoint, they'd have to kind of change things up to, I guess, continue the expansion. And like there would be barrier. Like we were talking about a town like Scottsdale having one. There's nothing but space or at the time, like nothing but space to put one up. You're thinking about putting one in New York. It's like, what are you doing? You're building one off a yeah. tower and... Yeah, it's probably not economical to build one in Manhattan. Yeah. I would imagine that the... Uh, Staten Island. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> probably yeah. isn't going to happen. Yeah. You're going to need to build it either on a barge or mm-hmm. 200 kilometers or miles inwards. Yeah. I think that there becomes a, uh, a point where, you know, that, that growth will, will 
not be the main focus. Well, no, of and the then they'll focus on profitability. It's like everybody else like, right now. Exactly. Yeah. Just yeah. like every other company. Yeah. And I mean, that's a great transition, I think, to um, a market update. Mm-hmm. And last week was, I don't know, somewhat less interesting than it was the previous week. The the way things have been have been going is it's kind of just a continued grind higher when you look at U.S. equities, but more specifically the Nasdaq and the top ten um, contributors to the S and P five hundred. It's just been a flight to safety in names that everybody recognizes into the profitable into the businesses that are able to cut cut staff. Um, with all that said, you go and you look at the the large revenue benefiters from uh, the COVID period. So think Home Depot, et cetera. They have really started to pull back and they're anticipating there there being contractions in their their year-over-year numbers and quarter-over-quarter even. And that's concerning for sure. It does speak to either the the shift in consumption and rotation back to where we were pre-COVID, more that 2018, 2019 period. But at the same time, we're, we're getting mixed signals for sure. Mm-hmm. And the, the rhetoric and the financial headlines are now shifting to there being a debt ceiling crisis in the United States, in Canada. I think the, the headlines that are the, the news that's grabbing headlines is more around our, our housing crisis and interest rates. The five-year Canadian bond went up 50 basis points early this week and end of last week. What does that mean? It went from like 298 to 348 to 345. That means that five-year fixed-term mortgages are going to be more expensive than they probably were two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So it's a this mixed market that's incredibly challenging. I think I mentioned last week and I in all my conversations with clients and, and prospects, it's been this is the hardest market to put money to work in just because valuations are high, volatility is low, but uncertainty is not being priced in in the way in which we saw it last year, where you had the VIX index that I talked about incessantly um, hovering in the high 20s, low 30s for a good portion of the year, whereas this year it's 17. It's below average. Mm -hmm. And um, it's odd for sure. So what I think most people are probably going to see over the next six to eight weeks as we inch closer to what is probably required to be some sort of action on um, the policy front from um, the United States government and Congress and, and passing a new debt ceiling. Yeah, increase. June 1st, I think, is the Yellen said. S- sort of, right? One, yeah. We can um, revert back to history. And the last time we had a crisis like this, it was when a Democrat was in power when Ob- in 2011 with Obama. And during that time period, they it went right down to the wire. It was definitely scary. The, from just markets were uncertain. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're not pricing in there being any sort of of issue. Yeah, yeah 2011 esque issue. Yeah. But you're starting to see spikes in short term U.S. Treasury rates versus what they probably should be. There is now a what they call a credit gap and a, a spread there that you wouldn't usually see. Um, and I think that investors are going to continue to be scared about this. I, I know in our, um, internally we're, we're reading a lot of stuff about this, just the info coming from major research um, banks, et cetera. And it's something to talk to your advisor and your portfolio manager about. I think personally they're likely going – it would be weird – for them not to come to some sort of resolution here, but it's not unlike the Republicans to push it to the wire on mm-hmm. purpose to get what they want. And um, with all that said, what, what does it mean? I mean, quite honestly, if you look back at the two le- 2011 period, what did really well? Gold did incredibly well during that period. Same with silver. Um, but so did equities to an extent. It was volatile, no, no doubt. Uh, actually, at one point, I think the S&P 500 was down close to 16 or 17% through that summer yep. because the resolution didn't come till August. So you definitely need to be paying attention. The, the market definitely, it snapped back after the fact. But again, the snapback from 2011 to 2012 is going to be different than 2023 to 2024. And you, you, you definitely have to be on it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be watching this. I'm sure I'm going to be talking about it more on this podcast. I didn't think we would get to the summer. 
I thought that this was a nothing burger. I still think generally this is a nothing burger from just it, it's it's weird that the United States would cut off their nose to spite their face. Yeah. Like, why would you go through this? Why would you put into question your credit quality? Why Why is it that they, they do this? I mean, I'm I, sure it's because they want you to look over here while something else is happening <laughs> on the other side. Exactly. Maybe but. it's while they push push forward Ron to sanctimonious and Donald Trump. I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's because the um, Fox News and CNN is, are falling apart at the seams. They're, they're paying fines like it's nobody's Left business. Center, yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, you know, what I generally what I got out of that is buy Bitcoin. And um, <laughs> that is not financial advice <laughs> at all, especially not for me. So um, I say that in jest. But the I, I think it's interesting for you to say about the, I guess, what the market's telling us or what these indexes are telling us in terms of volatility and, and the pricing in of uncertainty, et cetera. Because like me as a semi-educated investor and someone who would look at this is like, I just looking at things from afar, I can't think of a more, I can't think of a time in my life where I've been more uncertain about what the next six months is going to look like. Seriously? Oh, for sure. And and again, this might just be my, you shared an item this morning. This is Canadian specific. And I think maybe we'll get into more details next week. Cause realistically it was something that Joel and I looked at for about a minute and a half before recording. But the, Home equity line of credit numbers in Canada skyrocketing year over year. The what was the other item? One hundred and seven percent mortgage liabilities. Mortgage liabilities. Total assets. As a share of total assets. So there's these kind of underlying things happening. Which I mean, there's there's numbers on and inflation. I, I feel like we talk. We've talked about it every week essentially for eight or twelve months now. Call it. Yeah, two nine years. months for sure in, in, in real good context. And you can get a new viewpoint on that every week if you if you search it out and mm-hmm. someone saying that it's the end of the world and others saying that it's expected, et cetera. And you have, I mean, from a political standpoint, I mean, locally, obviously we have a, which we're going to get to in a, in a second here, I think, but we have a local election coming up that could... S- how that goes could sway things a decent amount in this province. In the U S we're getting into election season. As you pointed out earlier, people are putting in their presidential bids on the Republican side as we speak. And we talk about the, I I said this before we started recording as well. We're essentially, you know, we're, we're one or two more world events away from that volatility number going off the board. And, I'm not sure about you, but I've been keeping track of all these one-time world events or once-in-a-generation world events that we've been seeing, seeing, and that number's higher than one over the past few years. So, again, how do you predict that? You can't. I think, obviously, the the markets who's the general sentiment around it is going to be based off of history and based off of concrete, more concrete items. Whereas my perception of volatility or uncertainty out there would be more based off of my feeds and it's easy to fall into that spiral. But it is interesting, again, and maybe for some of our listeners too, to hear uh, you know, where that uncertainty volatility index sentiment is currently sitting because I think a lot of that could change easily over the next few months given just what we've, what we've seen over the past 12. But No, I completely agree with you. Uh, it's... Fun time for you, though. You get to answer all those calls and you get to... You know, the best time to build business is when things are um, bad. Mm -hmm. I had my best years from 2020 to 2022. And I don't anticipate that when things are great, I'm going to get as many calls with uh, people that are upset with where they're currently at. Mm -hmm. So bring on the bad times. But with all that said, I I hope for um, a soft landing, no doubt. The last thing I want is for, I mean, especially as someone who works predominantly with business owners, and it's not easy to to build and then maintain through these times. And I, I, from my perspective, when I look at uh, the United States and then the Canadian market, it's as we mentioned, it is... A tale of two stories, truly. Mm-hmm. We aren't experiencing the same political volatility while maybe we are um, inching 
to a similar way in which we handle or promote our politicians, mm -hmm. I still think that there's unique problems here that aren't necessarily as prevalent there. Prevalent there. So, I mean, in our the, the current election coming up here, I mean, I, I kind of today wanted to talk about what our predictions might be. Mm -hmm. And this is me not speaking or talking my book here. Yeah. I have no idea still how I'm voting. But the it's just showing to me that I mean, the Alberta economy is strong, stable, relative mm -hmm. to the rest. Um, the debt ceiling, that conversation in the United States, the fact that they're, as a percentage of GDP, are now well above 100%. Uh, the, there is concerns or cause for concern. The All In podcast can't go in an episode without talking about these constraints, these problems, the interest rates and, and the interest costs um, as a percentage of the budget. Mm -hmm. They can't stop talking about it. Whereas in Canada, I think most of that is actually on the consumer side. Mm. It's more on the, the, the person who's participating in the economy where the issue is. Well, and I mean, who spurred that issue, but... Don't give me conversation wrong. for another day. Who, but. Uh, it's hard for me to say even not blame, who, but like what what actions led to that? Which I mean, spurred Absolutely. by the government. We but. have, in my opinion, plenty of problems, but the only one that really matters is housing, mm -hmm. and we need policy around it that actually solves the supply. And it's all that I would vote on if it was up to me. It's the only thing to that, in my opinion, one solves our our demographic issue. It solves the equality problem where a large majority of wealth is derived from household wealth and the, the growth or owning a home. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where most people uh, build the, the majority of their nest egg. It contributes to standard of living increases, stability. It, you have opportunity, opportunity for help, yeah. um, a healthy uh, community. All of those things stem from home ownership. And right now we are, I'm continuing to see from economists, people that are commenting on the space, they're talking about 45 year mortgages, 60 year mortgages, CMHC, the, the Canadian mortgage um, institute, whatever housing, something. Anyways, they keep talking about the, the balance sheet concerns and as a percentage of, of people's incomes, how much interest costs are taking up. This is all being solved with T new TFSAs, where it's not being solved with supply. And I don't know what it's going to take to get somebody to do something about this. But for me, I'm watching our provincial election right now, mm -hmm. and everyone's talking about how they're, they're no one's addressing housing. Mm -hmm. Nobody. It's not really a hot button. It's thing. not a hot button issue. It, it still is healthcare issues and it's education. And like, don't get me wrong, our children matter, and all of those things are important. But for me as a voter, I think the last election they did a very good job taking care of of um, childcare. It was a great advancement that I think everybody, especially millennials, should be happy about. Yeah. But I mean, it's an easy thing to market, right? Too like that one. Like it's, but it's such a small. Like when you in the whole scheme of things, it's just a small number in terms of like oh, yeah. that spend. Hundred um, percent. In terms of like from a budget perspective, etc., it's not not a huge one. I, so I, I think we won't necessarily break this down. This. Joel had had dug up this great graphic, which I think you'll share in the newsletter. Yeah, maybe from Trevor Toom. From Trevor Toom. Okay, yeah. So and it it's a great way, a great visual for seeing a in our case the government of Alberta twenty twenty three budget and seeing the the ins and the outs. Then you know I'm I'm not going to harp on this very much, but people in general, myself included, love to complain about obviously what's affecting them and how, you know, a, a government budget or changes to a, you know, a tax code or whatever it might be might change them in, or might affect them individually. And it's like, well, why can't they just raise the, or why can't they just, you know, get rid of this and, or reduce personal tax or reduce corporate tax? Like why does this keep going up indexing, whatever it might be? It's a balancing scale when it comes to, a government's budget, right? Like, sure, yeah, we can issue. I mean, we can do with the. We won't go into our federal government budget and that because that would be a bit more of a uh, be more difficult, be a bit more difficult, and a bit more of a discussion about uh, large deficits. But the Alberta twenty twenty three budget, I think it's two point three billion dollars surplus is what was projected. Projected. Now I know a lot of that we talked about last week too. Oil. That's yeah, we need that seventy five dollar oil. But just looking at this, you can see okay, like. 
truly at this time, I would think from a f- fiscal standpoint, it would make sense to be balanced as much as possible and or curb that spending as much as possible, or at least focus that spending on the things that really matter. And as you point out, like, I mean, health, education, child services, social services, et cetera, we can have debates back and forth. We could have, if we wanted to, we could have guests on here that could speak to all the things that money should be spent on. But I can't agree more with you that none of these things matter if we don't have a strong housing system. So Alberta, we talked, I mean, I can't remember, that must have been six, nine months ago, we talked about the projected immigration numbers or the opportunity for immigration numbers into this country and how big of an opportunity Alberta had specifically in relation to that. And Edmonton, from me hearing about kind of residential development in our two major centers here in, in this province, we have nothing but opportunity to be able to follow this through. So there needs to be policy around this, supporting the fact that we need to build this infrastructure. And, you know, not the sky's the limit might be kind of a the wrong sentiment to have because we do have a dependence still on our our cash cow in this province, but we're continuing to see some more diversification there. And that diversification can only get better if we continue to build out our population and the availability for housing. So I can't agree more in general with that sentiment and it is not being talked about enough, but again, it's not, it's not an easy thing to talk about sometimes because it's, it is more of a future oriented planning thing. Whereas we all know now, for the most part, when you're going through a political campaign, I'm sure you listened or watched at least a clips of the debate between Rachel and Daniel Smith last week. It's all the, the here and now or talking about history, about how the other person screwed up. And so, you know, Daniel talking about how the NDP screwed up before she got in. And then Rachel talking about how the UCP has been screwing up since they've been in. So it's a lot of back and forth on that and not a, because that's how, that's what sells and that's, what's easy enough to give across in content right now. Mm-hmm. It's talking about quick hair things. You really have to, as a voter, like you have to dig into what all this policy stuff means and what their actual um, positions are on these things. So like following you had mentioned Mel Cowett's uh, newsletter, like that, what a great resource to be able to kind of dig into more information and understand where, you know, certain policy positions are coming from because what you're going to get on Twitter or on global news and I mean, they're doing their jobs. Like, I mean, all that stuff is relevant and it's in his content and the stuff that you, that is out there. But in terms of, you're never going to get a, a leader to stand up and give a 45 minute presentation about this is my plan for housing. Well, that's what's going to watch it. Exactly. But like that, but if we're going to be honest about what's important, that would be important for him to understand. But number one, 70% of people don't care. Yep. So and for the people that do, like it's harder to get that information to understand. It's like, well, what is your position on this and what are we going to do about it? And quite frankly, the biggest, I think, uh, something that we probably don't think too much about is the fact that these politicians are in for four years and mm-hmm. housing policy is going to impact 15 years down the road. 100%. And but it should be, a, like, a, that, this should be something that should be, like it shouldn't be a, I always say bipartisan and partisan the wrong way, but it should, this should be a, a group think. Everybody should be in a group on a go on forward basis. Right. So it's like, get your butts moving on this. Like, no, it doesn't matter if you're liberal NDP, UCP, whatever it might be. We all want to have an economy that moves forward into the, you know, the next hundred years. And we want to be well positioned globally in order to do that. So we need to make that the investment in there. It shouldn't matter. I mean, we, we're, they're going to fight about all the nuts and bolts anyways, no matter how it runs down. But generally speaking, there needs to be more of a focus on that and more, more dialogue around it. No, I totally agree with you. Um, moving into recommendations for the week, I have mm-hmm. not a lot, but I did want to speak to something it was super weird that this happened to me but i was listening to a founders episode that was produced i don't know maybe it was three weeks ago maybe it was a month ago Mm -hmm. and it was about sam zell and he is i don't know objectively the most successful commercial real estate investor to ever live Mm -hmm. he had a lunch with the guy who produces founders he's one of founders is a Invest like the best Colossus right. podcast. Yeah. And so it's very well done. The guy who does it 
goes insanely deep, reads all of the autobiographies, biographies, books about these people or people in those industries and does an episode. And he did one on Sam Zell about commercial real estate and how he built his fortune and his, his business. And he went for lunch with Sam Zell probably a month ago, six weeks ago. And the guy died last week. And after that episode, there was a ton of, um, we'll call it Twitter threads talking about all the things that he has done. And for me, it, it was kind of shocking, but as somebody who's trying to focus more on commercial real estate and understand it better as more of my clients are interested in doing it or are doing it or are the benefactors financially from success in it, Mm -hmm. it was a really great podcast to listen to. It was also sad to hear him on one, the podcast, and then two, passing away a few weeks later, kind of hit home, how short life is. Really great podcast. I don't like recommending it because then people will stop listening to me, I think, because it's (laughs) that much better. But that's my reco for the week. Um, I have a lot of really great things to read. Uh, For those that are interested in the the wealth transfer, I have a great piece from the New York Times that I shared. And uh, just speaking to what's going to happen in the next two decades, so for anybody who's trying to build a business, servicing that industry is going to be important. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I'm interested in it because I think um, I directly benefit from a business momentum perspective. But yeah. there's tons of opportunity, whether it be old folks' homes to estate planning to accounting. There's a ton of work there. Mm-hmm. So those are my recos. You got anything? I just started. I, I'm not fully through it yet. I'm listening on the way way here, but again, not to I guess push people towards other podcasts. But uh, Biz Breakdown and the Colossus um, Restoration Hardware oh, was there. It just yeah. got released like last night, so I was listening to it this morning. Um, we've talked about it a few times, obviously, and just kind of an interesting dynamic of their company and how they've changed direction in terms of how they're presenting themselves. I guess. And so it's been interesting so far. So again, it's such a great, some of those podcasts are a bit longer in in nature, but for the most part, like you get kind of a good synopsis of, of information in a short amount of time with those. Do you think Gary Friedman is insane? Don't you have, don't you have to be? Yeah, probably (laughs) for context, Gary Friedman's the the CEO and I wouldn't call him a founder because he bought it, Mm. but of, of restoration hardware all of the marketing ideas are his, the way that he's he's kind of stolen from Apple, I yeah. think, when building shrines to their, their product. Mm-hmm. The He's 65 and just going ham still. It's so interesting. I work with so many people that are just dead set on retiring at 55. Mm-hmm. And then you see all of these people that are 65 and they're just getting started. Still killers, still. Yeah. <laughs> Absolute killer. Yeah. And um, I listened to that podcast, uh, the Compound podcast, uh, three or four weeks ago where it talked about if you lived to 2030, you're likely going to live to 120. Mm-hmm. It just, Gary Friedman's only a, just past his halfway, halfway mark. point. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I, 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 it's an interesting one. Again, um, I, I read a bunch about Sam Zell after you had mentioned too. So I think that's a, you know, good recommendation on your side for that podcast. And like, even just, uh, for, for those who like to learn about, I don't know, this, it's just interesting. Cause like I, I had never really heard, I, I had maybe seen the name a couple of times, but didn't know anything about him. Not highly marketed in terms of, uh, general understanding of who he is and what he did. And it, a pretty interesting life. So it's definitely worth a listen to. All right, man. Catch you next Wednesday. I guess so. We're a hump day podcast now. Check you later.